Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 402. Thank you for tuning in, and here we are on a Monday for a surprise bonus episode. Basically, there's two films out this week that I really rated, and I got the opportunity to talk to two people involved in them. So um, I wanted to put them both out. Uh, The first one, today's episode, is with Sean Levy, who, man, we had one of my favourite conversations it's always nerve-wracking when it's a press junket. It's a director and producer that you've never had any interaction with ever. They're Americans, so there's a good chance you're just not going to have similar references. But I'm a big fan of Sean's work and his new film, Free Guy, with Jodie Comer and Ryan Reynolds, who I'm obviously a huge fan of both of those. Uh, Taika Waititi, loads of really good people in it. I absolutely adored. I put it on expecting to enjoy it because i enjoy all ryan reynolds films and pretty much everything sean's ever done but i enjoyed it even more than i was expecting so i was excited to talk to sean about this wednesday's episode is with steve stamp aka steves from people just do nothing whose film people just do nothing big in japan is out later this week free guy is out now um i highly recommend both they're fantastic so yeah i won't ramble on too much this week's episode as ever is brought to you by speechdevelopmentrecords.com. Uh, you can get my merch there, my music, my DVDs, all sorts of good stuff. If you're tuning in for the first time, go and have a scroll through the back catalogue. There's been loads of really good people on from Spike Lee to Simon Pegg to Michael Fassbender to Mary J. Blige to Lena Headey to Florence Pugh. You know, loads of really good people. So check them all out yeah let's get on with the podcast this is episode 402 of the distraction pieces podcast with the one sean levy Yes, I'll begin if that's okay. Yeah, let's do it. Right, I'm joined today by Sean Levy. How are you, sir? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to chat with you today. I'm excited to chat. Um, but again, you, you know, before we get into the film, how's everything been going? How how does it feel? It's it's obviously it's been a weird year or two for film and TV, and a weird time to be releasing. Yeah, but, but you guys are going into the cinema, and it's you, you're getting to do it properly, right? We, we are. We are. I mean. We made this movie, Free Guy, in the summer of 19. Yeah. And we were supposed to come out on the 4th of July weekend, uh, 2020. And we've since been delayed a few times as a result of the pandemic. And here we are a year later. So two years since I made the movie, a bunch of false starts. I know some of us feel like, wait, didn't Free Guy already come out seven times? But no, it didn't. And, uh, and I am happy that this moment has finally arrived, uncertain though it is. This movie was made for audience delight and for the biggest, loudest exhibition possible. Um, It's very much about the kind of delight of the spectacle of uh, the world within Free Guy. And so I'm I'm really quite excited to to finally share it with audiences and equally gratified that the reactions and reviews thus far seem to indicate that we have we've done our job. We've done our job right. A hundred percent. I mean, I wanted to thank you off the bat for the Free Guy trailer. And 
I'll give you some kind of b- background here. I avoid tra- tra- trailers as much as I can because I love films and I love the surprises. And I feel about maybe five or six years ago, trailers started to go the way of giving away everything. And you don't do that in, in Free Guy. You held so much back and it was so beautiful. I did see the Free Guy trailer in the cinema. So again, if I'm seeing a trailer, I want to see it in the cinema. There's, there's honestly, there's films I've got coming out in the next few months that I've not watched the trailers for. So I'm really, I'm strict on this, but how much of a fight is that? And how much is that somebody you're conscious of that you're making sure you're holding back stuff oh, yeah. for the, the cinema going public rather than you yeah. need to lure them in? Well, it, that, it, look, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. It is absolutely very much a push pull because yeah. you do need to lure them in. Increasingly, one needs to compellingly draw people out of their homes right? Because it's so much easier to lazily watch stuff on your telly at home. But Ryan and I were very united in wanting to hold back some surprises, wanting to hold back some twists of plot. And that is, I mean, that was a challenge when we cut our first trailer. But bear in mind, because of all these pandemic false starts, we've released three trailers. And everyone keeps saying, well, sure, leave shown us the whole movie, the whole, I'm like, no, 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 there's so much movie in this movie. Believe me, there's a lot you're not expecting and a lot you don't know. And so I'm glad that you noted that because we very much did want, we wanted the gratification for audiences when they finally did see the movie to, to not feel like they'd already been shown the whole thing. Yeah, exactly that. And it's, it's, it's interesting. it feels like a film that wears its influences on its sleeve. It is. It's Truman Show meets Groundhog Day meets Wreck-It Ralph. And, and wearing influences on your sleeve is, is something you've you've proudly done before with Stranger Things and stuff like that. How comfortable are you with that? I know there's a lot of people get paranoid of like, no, I don't want anyone to know that. It's, if you're a film fan, you're going to be influenced by films, surely. Well, that's the thing. There's a difference between kind of self-conscious nods and influences. And the truth is, take Real Steel, for instance. When I made Real Steel, like, yeah, you could tell I had seen every Rocky film. You could probably tell I could quote Rocky 1, 2, 3, and 4. And those influences were at play in the dramatic structure and very inspiring to me as far as the storytelling of an underdog sports film. With Free Guy, those influences were once again at work. And again, I wasn't trying to do a new Truman Show or a new Groundhog Day, but you better believe both those movies inspired me as a younger film goer and as an adult filmmaker. Other influences might be a little more surprising. Ryan and I talked quite a bit about being there and the Peter Sellers protagonist and that kind of legacy of the innocent hero in the face of a cynical world. And we drew a line, if you will, uh, and again, just as far as inspirations between Chauncey Gardner, Buddy the Elf, and Tom Hanks in Big. That's a a real legacy of man-children with a a kind of wide-eyed optimism in the midst of a world that is often bleak, often cynical, and is there a kind of nobility and a potential heroism in that innocent perspective of this alternate kind of hero yeah I, I love that and you in in the character of guy you you had to present you know a man child as you say as such but also one that's can then be convincing as you know a, a muscle-bound superhero so 
I guess how did you decide upon Ryan Reynolds for that for that combination of of innocence and 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 yeah that look? Well, it was interesting because in our earliest meetings, I was very aware as a huge fan of Deadpool that Ryan's so-called brand of comedy was hard-edged, rated R, arch, witty, sarcastic, self-consciously ironic that those were kind of defining traits of, of the Deadpool tone. I told Ryan in our first meeting, this is not Wade Wilson. This is a very different character that I need you to build. And I shorthanded it for Ryan by saying, I want Canadian Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. I want your most <laughs> civil, kind, well-intentioned self. I want the boy who was raised in Vancouver as a good Canadian chap. And that we differentiated between that Deadpool tone and the free guy tone. I knew I was still getting the same Ryan Reynolds comedic superpowers, but it was going to be in the service of a movie and a protagonist that was markedly different from what we know him as in Deadpool. And I also knew having seen Ryan in many movies over the years and many romantic comedies over the years, as we all remember that he had that range that he was both a muscle-bound action stud, but he was also just this sweet guy. And here was a character, ironically named Guy, who is defined, ironically, by his sweetness. And I knew that Ryan was capable of it if he was willing to view it as a departure, as a new kind of character. And he was very, uh, very much on board with that, with that mandate and with that shared goal. I love that mandate. I was shooting a show for NBC in in Vancouver during the pandemic, and it was my first time there. And I felt I couldn't have been in a better place because of that overwhelming politeness and friendliness and willingness to to do for for one another. Well, also, didn't you find, if you filmed in Vancouver, you probably found what I did, which is, and again, I, I was in the US, so I was in Trump's America when the pandemic started and yeah. all that ridiculous nonsense about, you know, where, where masks were politicized. And I went to Canada and it was like, oh, the rule is we wear masks on set. This is how we keep ourselves and those around yeah. us safe. And it was like just this very Canadian, like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. I'm going to do the thing that is respectfully asked of me and it wasn't like controversial and I very much appreciated that a hundred percent I couldn't agree more I remember one of the first people I spoke to out there because in the UK we had a similar thing of that of that it became politicized it was an infringement upon our our rights and someone out there just said to me we have to wear scarves 90% of the year. So a mask <laughs> is no different. Like, I'm used to having my face covered. It's cold. Why wouldn't yeah, you know? It's, it's, it's not some big infringement. It's just been spun that way. No, we, uh, we, Ryan and I have since made another movie uh, up in Vancouver together. And uh, anyway, we, we, it's a lovely place to work. And, and Free Guy really, we had long heard from our mutual friend, Hugh Jackman, that we would get along. And in fact, Hugh said, if you and Ryan ever make a movie together, you're going to end up making 10 movies together. And, and <laughs> from that very first meeting with Ryan, it was clear that we had a simpatico and that we met at a stage in our creative lives where we both knew how to do our jobs. We knew we were good yeah. at our jobs and we just kind of intersected in a place of real mutual respect and, and making free guy was a joy. And as Ryan said last night to someone, it's so thrilling that the joy of making the movie ended up in the movie. 
and yeah. on that screen. And that's not always the case. You know, that can be something that gets lost in translation. Correct. Sometimes, yeah. I, and look, sometimes it's a more anguished, challenge-riddled process, the, the artistic process. This one was really symbiotic and smooth and not simply between Ryan and I, but you bring in Jody Comer to that mix. You bring in Taika Waititi and the other cast members who are so talented. And everyone came with a very collaborative, uh, warm-hearted, uh, collective spirit. I love that. And I mean, speaking of, of Liverpool's finest, Jodie Comer, Indeed. need to bring her in because she's just an amazing actor. And I think th- her performances, for example, what blew her up in, in, in Killing Eve really illustrate because most people don't know that she's from Liverpool which in England is known for a very strong accent and it's her crazy character, man her, her character in, in Free Guy had to have two accents because it's not a spoiler but there's there's a game element so her game version and her real life version have different voices so how was that to to come upon Jodie and 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 find the right person for that role Well, we auditioned a lot of actresses for this role, and it really is the co-star. You know, Ryan might be the famous guy, but the Jodie Comer role in Free Guy is is as big, if not more, screen time than Ryan Reynolds because, as you say, the character exists in the video game world and the real world. And I'd seen Killing Eve. I made Ryan watch Killing Eve. And I remember saying to him early on, I think this actress has a shot at this part. And... We later had final callbacks where you bring, you know, five of your top choices into the room. And they read with Ryan in front of me. And every one of the other actresses was more famous than Jody. But within three lines of the first scene, Ryan kind of subtly, not so subtly turned to me with his jaw hanging open because both of us couldn't believe how good this young woman was. And I really felt like, oh, this is like, Meryl Streep and Kramer versus Kramer. This is a 20-something revelation. And, and, and to your point, I didn't even know she had that Liverpudlian accent. So when she went, how are you? How's it going? And I'm like, how's it going? What? <laughs> and I, I, and it, was, it wasn't Villanelle. It wasn't British. It was just uniquely Liverpool. And interestingly, and I know it's a longer answer than you might have wanted, no, later in the it. movie, she was like, she was daunted by the comedic agility around her. Particularly, you have Taika Waititi, you have Ryan Reynolds. Yeah. And she's like, listen, Sean, I, I, I'm not even going to try to do the accent. That was horrible. <laughs> I'm um, loving but it. she I'm goes, uh, it. she's like, Sean, I don't know how to be funny like that. And I said, here's the thing. Comedy is rhythmic. Comedy is musical. So you have a superhero power with accents because of your ear. Use your ear to find the comedy rhythm. And so there's a joke that's been in several trailers where literally Ryan's like, this is the first car I've ever driven before. And Jody goes, uh, I really wish you'd mentioned that. And Ryan goes, yeah. And Jody goes, yeah. And literally like <laughs> she did a few takes. She goes, what, what, why isn't it funny? Why isn't it funny? I'm like, just listen to Ryan's rhythm. Match his rhythm. Find that beat. Find that beat. And I literally used her super power with accents to be employed in her now superpower with comedy because it's all ear and rhythm and music and yeah. that she has in her core. I love that. That's fascinating to see the, 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 the workings of it. I mean, it's clear from that that you're a very hands-on director. 
you know and and i've 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 read in places and people mutual um colleagues have kind of said before that you you're someone and it's 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 going to sound like a weird thing to say but it really stands out when a director likes actors Exactly. And, and, and is, is a fan exactly. of actors. And that feels like that's the key there. It shouldn't be a weird thing to say. No, it right? shouldn't. I mean, it really shouldn't. It shouldn't. But the truth is, you talk to any actors you know or your listeners know, yeah. I guarantee you they will say, oh, yeah, in film and television especially, I don't think it's the case in theater, by the way. In film and telly, 80% of the directors are more comfortable with their cinematographer or in the edit room. They yeah. view actors as this other species and it requires a different language, a different modality of, of engagement. I love actors. I cast actors whose talent I revere because it makes going to work a blast for me every day. I've done it my whole career. It's why those night at museum movies, for instance, are cast so elevated in every small supporting role, just so I could go to work with people that I respected and revered. And so I love actors. And I want my actors to be my collaborators, not props who say words. I like getting in it with them. I like that their language is emotional because that's how I try to live with an emotional language. And it remains after now 13 movies that I've directed my favorite part of the job. Yeah. Speaking of of which then, how was it working with Taika? Because obviously he's a director. He's, he's, he's come into prominence as an amazing director as well. Did that make the collaboration even easier? Because you kind of you've both got that shorthand or knowledge of of how these things work. I I appreciate the question because so many people have asked me, did Taika being a fellow director make the collaboration harder? But in fact, you're exactly right. It made it easier because he knows what I'm up against. He knows the challenges of the job. And by the way, I should mention, I think he's a magnificent director. Uh, and not just Jojo, which brought him to such prominence, but yeah. Boy and Wilder People. And he's just, I think, Taika and Ragnarok, which is kind of a masterwork in the MCU. So I think Taika's phenomenal. So What we do in the shadows is one of, I think, one of the best comedy films of all time. Just the, the pacing of it. Thank you for reminding me. Yeah, he is a singular voice. And yeah. as a performer, he's also a singular voice. And I, I don't make the following comparison lightly, but... Really, I've not seen a a comedic wellspring that works as fast and as strangely (laughs) as Taika's since I directed Robin Williams in the Three Night at Museum movies. Robin would get into a trance where he would just be flowing and he would just do a version, another version, another version, another version. And Taika's like that too. Taika does it with this additional component which is he's a director so he's riffing he's improvising but he always knows where the camera is and he always knows how he needs to get back to the point of the scene so i found taika a joy to be around an inspiring energy and yes someday i will release a 30 minute supercut of taika waititi's improvisation (laughs) because though i gave a taste of it in a minute and a half social media piece that i released last week uh, it, it was a rare joy directing this fellow director who's also a comedy genius, truly. Can, can I ask how you've kind of come to your style and approach as a director? Because it it feels like the fact that, like, I mean, we can, can look at Str- Stranger Things and Kin and many other things that you've done that 
put young actors at the forefront. And it feels like you coming up kind of as a young actor initially, it, it all feels like it must have been a, a learning curve all the way That's to have been on that side of it, to have come through and know what you know what you like about it and don't like about it from that side. Well, that's an interesting, you know, I did do a lot of theater and I acted in my, in my teenage years, in my early 20s, but I was never, I was never that successful. I was always pretty good, but I was never great, great. And it is interesting because I, I have done and I continue to do a lot of projects with young actors, starting with Cheaper by the Dozen and Night at the Museum yeah. and Real Steel. And my student film was a coming-of-age story about two 13-year-olds uh, who get married to get into the Guinness Book of World Records. It was called Broken Record, and it started my career. I don't think the influence is as much that I was a young actor, although I've been around actors my whole life, and so I love them. But I do think that there is... My own childhood was a mixed bag. Some of it was very happy, and some of it was more challenging. And I love, and I think part of me will always yearn for the actual innocence of childhood. So I like writing these love letters to that moment before the world has let us down, before the world has bruised us. And so these coming of age stories are very resonant to me. And I do keep returning to them, it seems. And I also love directing kids because they are more pure. And the ability to give one note, one word that will unlock a performance and change a performance. I like how intuitive and visceral it is rather than many adult actors where the process becomes more cerebral and you have to find a more circuitous road to the note and to the results you want. I I completely agree. It's always, as an actor as well, it's always hunting for those moments where you get to just go through without your brain getting in, in the way as such. Like you, you may have noticed I've got a stammer. Like when I'm acting, I can get it under control. I deal with it. But in the few roles where I've been allowed to stammer, the truth that gets to come through, the lack of filter, because it isn't something that can be put on or controlled in the moment. It's been some of my most excited moments on set and in working as an artist, because it's it's like finding that moment in kids, because they haven't had those years of right now, I'm going to do this to represent this. It comes through unfiltered and pure. And well, do you know what I what 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 I do in that in that? That's really interesting, and and I understand it because the whole goal is to get to something pure, to get yeah. to something honest, and to be to stumble into surprises. Yeah. And so I remember early on when I was like a film student, I remember reading about how Peter Weir would play music on set. And would play music, not just on set between takes, but during takes where there wasn't dialogue that needed to be recorded. So literally starting with Steve Martin on Cheaper by the Dozen and extending through Ben Stiller on Night at the Museum and, and, and Hugh Jackman on Real Steel. I often play music on set during the take to convey the feeling I want without cluttering it with words. And I use it all the time with Millie on Stranger Things. Now, if we're doing a certain kind of scene, Millie will say to me, Sean, can I get some music? Can you give me a hit of music? And I'll play music during the take because it's the cleanest, most pure way of giving a direction, of conveying what I want, because what I want is embedded in the feeling of the music, all in the quest for something pure. 
I love that. And your phrasing there of, of, of what I want is embedded in, in, in the music and these things, rather than it being here, I've got it, it written down. I find it fascinating. And I love that TV and film is still able to be made like that i i auditioned for stranger things season two and it was my favorite audition i've had because it came through and it said this character could be any age could be male or female and any gender they're going to be american from somewhere and that was just my favorite thing to get in the world rather than white bearded male it's like i know there's a good chance i'm not going to get it because i'm up against a 16 year old black girl and a 70 year old Asian man, yes. like all, all for this, yes. this same character. So how important is that when coming up with stuff, obviously producing and directing in, in Strange Things, to have that openness rather than be absolutely tied to, here's our yeah. script, here's this, to, 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 to realise that part of the character comes once you cast them, not, 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 not beforehand. Great First of all, I was daunted because I heard this was an hour long interview and that's a long one, but you're, this is, I'm, it's a fascinating and it's uh, going to be all right, man. I promise it's going to be all bro, right. <laughs> you're keeping it interesting. And that's a, another great question because here's the thing about stranger things. And I have to credit, I'll take only a tiny sliver of credit. I have to credit Carmen Cuba, who is our casting yeah. director, but I really have to credit the Duffer brothers who are, you know, like my younger brothers at this point. Here's the thing about the brothers. On the one hand, they rigorously plan their shots and they are meticulous in the construction of their scripts, yeah. but their real uncredited genius is they will respond to singularity and they will adjust character and story to the talent that inspires them. And I can give you a lot of examples, but yeah. I'll, you know, we were casting season one, we were looking for our Mike. Mike was the protagonist, the kind of action leader of the group, but in walks Gate and Matarazzo. And when he walked out, the brothers and I looked at each other and we were like, okay, that kid, I don't know what he's going to do in this show, but that kid is magic. That kid has something that's a one in a billion lovability. We're casting him now. We will find a way to use him. And we cast Gaten, I think before we cast any of the other boys, because he had that unique specialness. Another example, Steve Harrington was going to be one episode. Wow. Joe Keery was going to be one episode. Then it was going to be just season one. But as we're watching and as we're directing Joe, the brothers recognize, wait, this guy is so not just what we thought. Yeah. What if we paired him with Dustin? And it unlocked what became one of the favorite aspects of the last couple seasons. Yeah, same thing with Maya Hawk. Same thing with Papa, you know, and, and Brenner. They really will be open enough to inspiration and then mold characters around the ethos of the performer. So they're very rigid in their thinking about some things. They're very meticulous in other stages of the work. But when it comes to casting and responding to casting as a source of inspiration, that's one of their superpowers that people don't talk about. Do you you think those moments where you and the Duffers looked at each other or when Ryan turned around to you as Jody was there, do you think those moments can still happen 
via self-tapes because I find it a fascinating oh, thing at the moment. I'm a big fan of self-tapes because, as you can hear, I'm a nerd nerd for this shit. I thoroughly enjoy it. I love going, I'm just going to play with this. I don't feel the pressure. I enjoy it. It's part of the, the process. But I completely have to concede, there's been times where I've walked in the room and it's felt like we don't even need to do the lines it's charming because because it's you've walked in and there's that moment and you've clicked and you've got it and i think that's a bit that it's harder to force onto a self-tape as such well yeah it's here's the double edge of the self-tape phenomenon the great news is it gives so many more people the opportunity to take their shot you don't need to come to los angeles you don't need to have an agent you lay down a tape on your cell phone, click a link, and it's done. So you get to take your shot in a way that Hollywood has never allowed to this extent before. That's amazing. I am able to discover people that I wouldn't have ever met before. And it does still work. I will say this. Joe Keery, for instance, he was never on the list to play keys in Free Guy. Right. But he laid down a self-tape. Joe Keery, famous Steve Harrington, He's like, you know what? I know you're looking at a bunch of other guys. Can I just do a self-tape? I was like, Joe, I know you. He goes, I know, but the studio doesn't know me. And Ryan Reynolds doesn't know me. Let me do, let me do a self-tape. And he did an audition. And I clicked the link. And I'm like, oh, my God. People don't even know how good this kid is. Yeah. I bring that link to Ryan's house. I sit down with Blake and Ryan. And I'm like, I know you're not picturing the nerdy computer game coder this way. Watch this self-tape. And that's how Joe Keery got the part. So sometimes there can be that magic aha moment, but you aren't wrong. There's something that happens with bodies in a room that is goosebump inducing and magic in a unique way. And so they can both work. And I am grateful that both approaches exist. I I, I love hearing stories like that of someone like Joe, someone who's at Joe's level of success and level of respect has still got that fire and excitement and hustle to be, look, 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 just let, just let me do this. Do you mind if I do this? Go ahead, go ahead. I got to give you an even better one. Night at the Museum One, Dick Van Dyke asked to audition. Dick Van Dyke walked in and auditioned (laughs) for me. And I was like, what? He goes, I'm an actor. I know I can do this. I want to show you I can do this. And that's when I realized ever since then, that's now many years ago, ever since then, when I get some 22 year old who's like, yeah, I don't read anymore. I don't audition. You can offer. I'm like, fuck that. Do you want to show me you can do it? Then show me. Again, I I don't understand the opposite mentality. I had a a film I did. And again, I hit it off with everyone and they, there wasn't actually a role for me in this. So they split one of the roles in two because I like me and this other guy. But on that, I had to insist. I was like, send me something I can tape t- to show you because it's lovely that y- you want me involved, but I want you to know what I'm giving you. <laughs> you know what I mean, I'm going to turn up and act. I'd rather you know what I'm giving you than, than just, here we are. That, that is, that's another motivation. That's interesting. That was Chalene Woodley on The Spectacular Now, which was really kind of the first movie I produced but didn't direct. I remember Shailene saying to me over coffee, no, no, I want to audition so you see what you're going to get. Yeah, yeah. I want us both to know I'm right yeah. for this part. Yeah. And that's another really legitimate reason, and, and I love that. Yeah, that's perfect. Well, I mean, obviously we're jumping all over the place. That's what happens when there's an hour. But um, 
one of the things I, I love about being on set is all of the different departments and areas. And we've st- discussed your love of um, of actors, but there's so many other areas to play with in this film. Um, I, I directed a music video once and it was it was as if the guy was a computer game character. And even on that oh, wow. l- l- low budget, the fun that we had w- with the graphics is very different. His character was, was going to a club and doing a lot of drugs. So completely different tone. But the fun that we had with different things that we were putting up and Easter eggs and whatever else, how much fun was that to work with the graphics guys on this, the, the After Effects guys? Because there's so much that you can add. And it's about computer games, which is where Easter eggs kind of came from. So the amount that you could put into it, how was that? And how was it to know when to stop, I guess? That's a really good question. First of all, I, that your short film sounds fascinating. It's great I'd love fun. to see this character's drug-induced experience. Um, Free Guy, because the premise is a person who exists in a video game, it, it, it needed to play with the tropes and conceits and devices of video games, right? And that is Easter eggs, that is graphical interface. And it is all about icons and visual layers within the frame. So er, the first thing I did is I admitted to everyone how little I knew. I came to this movie, a casual gamer at best. I surrounded myself with an art department, a visual effects department, and a camera department who knew things and nuances of gaming culture and visual design that I didn't. And I encourage everyone to be vocal and to offer up suggestions. And then my job was, yes, that is going to add fantastic density to the visuals. But at a certain point, this movie needed to not just be a video game movie. I wanted to make a real movie movie where you rooted for a protagonist. It was romantic. It was funny. It was thematic. So, you know, it would reach a point where I was like, guys, my eye doesn't know where to go. Let's pull back. I need still to help the audience know where to look and where the focus of the narrative is. And that's the director's job, right? To titrate all these different ingredients so that you get the right kind of chemical balance. And and I love that part of the job too. I I love that. I mean, I want to give some people some bits to look out for because I didn't notice them until I was watching the credits at the end, but the voice cast that you've got with yeah. The Rock, with <laughs> Hugh Jackman, with Tina Fey, John Krasinski, and a whole slew of the Levy family. So like, how was that to bring your, to, to bring your family in and, and, and get everyone involved? Well, this is what is kind of the funny story behind that, is every piece of casting you just mentioned, including my daughters, came about late in the process and as a result of the collaborative flow between Ryan and I. We shot the movie. I did my director's cut of the movie. I said, Ryan, you're producing the movie with me. Come out to my edit room. And we sat in the room for a few weeks together and we edited and honed the cut of the movie together. As we were sitting there, Ryan and I would let ideas flow. And so we're like, hey, wait a second. That gamer character is wearing a mask. Wouldn't it be a fun Easter egg within a movie that is filled with Easter eggs? If it was the voice of Hugh Jackman. And yeah. literally, it's like, we called Hugh. We're like, hey, brother, could, you, could we send you some lines of dialogue and send us a voice memo from your phone? That's how that happened. Then Amazing. we're like, oh, wait, let's call The Rock. Let me call Tina Fey. And then similarly, Ryan is like, oh, you know, it'd be really funny if The Rock is the voice of this hulking video game avatar. 
but it's really being played by a cute little girl who just wants to waste NPCs. And I was like, conveniently, I have four girls in my house called my (laughs) daughters. So literally we took a camera to my house after school. I said, Charlie, Coco, let's go up to your bedroom, sit at the desk and pretend you're playing a video game and say these lines that Ryan is suggesting. And that joke, which is one of the bigger laughs in the movie, where my youngest daughter, who was eight or nine then, you know, is like, he's just an NPC. Waste that mother effort. That was literally a joke that was hatched on the edit room couch, shot on a little crappy camera. And it got such a big laugh once we put it in that we didn't touch it anywhere after. And that's how a lot of those cameos came about. Amazing. The, the, the organicness of that it, yes. again it's it's positive for me to hear of that even at that blockbuster level that all organicness can can be there and that fluidity that was my favorite part mate the best part is it's a blockbuster 100 million plus movie but there was something film schooling down and dirty gorilla about it god dude that's how alex trebek ended up in the movie it was an right. idea that we had in the edit room couch that's how all these different little surprises happen is even though we we're making this big movie at the end of the day, we're still just a bunch of people trying to tell a story and we just let the ideas flow. And it was really fun to, to be able to react in real time. And in, as you say, organic ways and just look for every opportunity to make the movie better. I love that. So, I mean, it's, it's clear from this conversation that, that, that you're a film fan. Um, how do you feel with where the industry is at the moment. Obviously, a pandemic has fast-forwarded these things, but there's been such a lean, I know, from from writing as well. There's such a demand for TV and becoming seemingly less and less a demand for films and particularly non-blockbuster films. Again, that's why I was so excited to watch this and have that film student element or that, you know, that indie film element of it. How do you feel we are as an industry and and where does the future lie? Because I think your Netflixes and that have saved the day in many ways because there's so many films that wouldn't have been made that have now been had these amazing budgets. But also, I love s- sitting in the c- cinema and, w- and watching a film and being in darkness and having surround sound and this. So, yeah, what's your thoughts on where everything goes? Well, it might, I feel similarly to you. I am grateful and I see huge opportunity in the streamers to make movies and shows that would not otherwise get made. And I look forward to exploiting that opportunity. (laughs) However, I I won't lie and say, oh yeah, streaming's, you know, same thing as theatrical, but it's not, it's not. And when I sit in a dark theater with strangers and I'm watching storytelling, whether it's my own or a fellow filmmaker, on a big screen with big sound and the organic collective euphoria Mm. and connection that happens with strangers in the dark. That's a beautiful, sublime, artistic experience, human experience. And I, I, I pray that we don't see it vanish because it is different. It is more gratifying in many ways. And I hope as a filmmaker that I will continue at least as long as my career lasts and hopefully as long as, you know, the generations to come have, have filmmaking careers that the, uh, the opportunities in both mediums continue to exist. I completely agree. And I mean, 
speaking of of cinema, I want to ask a question that needs a little bit of a story ahead of it. But you touched upon earlier about a lot of people thinking that Free Guy has come out multiple times. Um, I mentioned I was doing this podcast uh, to my brother yesterday, and he thought that. But one of the things on my list that I wanted to talk touch upon at some point, and you've brought it up a couple of times, I think real steel is one of the the great overlooked films in 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 cinema recent times and the story of how i paid it so much attention was my my brother a few years after it came out was traveling in in malaysia and he he went to a cinema he wanted to watch something and all that was on was real steel a few years many years after it had come out and he watched it and messaged me was like this film's great it's got all the heart and all the beat of a of a classic fight movie um throwdown was a recent a a more recent one that i love that goes back to that tradition of just look it's winner and loser it's you're putting it all on the line um so how was that to make and how was it to sell as a robot movie but kind of also a fight movie it's it's such a mixed a mixed one is i think it's why i maybe overlooked it at first and then watch it i was like no this is everything i thought i have so much to say but i i won't here's what i would say (laughs) number one People always talk about Real Steel being underrated or overlooked, but guess what? It has not been underrated by audiences and it has not been overlooked by audiences and fans. It's almost a decade later and not a week goes by that people don't talk to Hugh and I about Real Steel or ask about a sequel to Real Steel. So I have never felt less than seen for having made that movie. That movie, I love it like you do, and I love it like the fans do. And as to why it, you know, it made 300 something million dollars, so certainly not a failure, but also not a blockbuster. It's not a slouch in any way. No, but but (laughs) the reason it was not a blockbuster is we got bad advice about marketing. It was marketed as robots. And there's no way to market a movie as robots and not look like Transformers Jr. That was a cataclysmic mistake. It is a father-son redemption story, and it is a Rocky-inspired underdog sports movie. And if it had been sold and marketed as what it was, I think the box office outcome would have been different. That being said, I'm not even bittersweet about it because every week I feel love for that thing we made. And that is very, very meaningful to me. I love it. Well, I'm pleased to, to add to that love. Um, I mean, we'll start to wrap things up as we've got 10 minutes or so left, I think, 10, 15. Um, we've spoken about big, big blockbusters and Free Guy is a big blockbuster movie, but it's discussing essentially free will versus determinism, which is huge subjects that you don't expect to be kind of discussed and put forward. And it, it takes you as a viewer on a journey of what you want and what you feel. How was that to kind of to try and subtly put all that in there, but, you know, still keep it enjoyable and fun and a, and a ride? Well, to be really honest, the themes that you just alluded to, those were the reasons Ryan and I said yes to this movie. We yeah. would not have made a video game action comedy if all it was was a video game action comedy. We knew we needed to tick those boxes and make an incredibly fun, action-packed, kinetic, and spectacle-filled movie. But the reason we linked arms, the entire basis for our passion for this movie was, oh, we can use this as a vessel 
to smuggle in ideas about free will, personal empowerment, the impact one can have in the world, and the way in which we can all kind of outpace the world's expectations for us. That all of us feel, and this goes back to the underdog themes of Real Steel and Stranger Things, by the way, all anthems to the underestimated and to the overlooked. And this is literally a movie about someone who was designed to be unseen and unnoticed in the background, which is the same thing as the AV club and stranger things. It's the same thing as Charlie Kenton and real steel, a washed up boxer that the world had forgotten. And it's about underestimated individuals questioning that expectation and saying, wait a second, maybe I can be more, maybe I can do more. And that's what made us want to make Free Guy. And so those ideas that resonated for you, that was the point. Yeah, yeah. That's the whole motivation. I love that. So was there any point in this kind of two-year limbo almost that you struggled at all with the the film? Like, is it ever going to get released? Is it going to... Because, again, press junkets are always a weird thing because you're generally talking about a film, you know, that you made one or two films ago or that you made X amount of time ago. That's just extended in this, in this instance. So how was that period? I guess, was there a worry that it's going to miss the boat? We've touched upon a box office and stuff like that. Sadly, that is a key factor in, in big films. So yeah. How was that period? Well, the feeling during the pandemic, while we watched our release dates get changed and delayed, I guess initially there was some frustration. There was some concern that the pop culture references and the gaming world references would get aged out or less relevant. Ironically, the movie's themes of how to maintain optimism in a disappointing (laughs) world, the themes have become more timely than they were when we made the movie two years ago. And our core aim, which was to make a movie that was designed for audience escapism and delight. I would dare say that we need escape and delight and hopefulness more than we ever have in the cinemas. Now, what I don't know is what the marketplace is. It's very rare that big budget original movies get made. I'd like to think there's still an appetite for them. And I'd love people to show up and buy tickets to Free Guy and tell these freaking studios that we as audiences want something other than sequels and franchise installments. So that's very much my hope, but that's beyond my control. What's in my control is I want to tell this story as entertainingly and dimensionally as possible. And I want to convey themes of hopefulness and optimism to the audience. And I do feel that the stuff I can control, the way that the movie was crafted and those feelings and themes that it conveys, my hope and my hunch is that we did do our jobs and the rest is up to the box office face, as I learned on Real Steel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and it, again, it's a key thing as a director to learn the stuff you can control, right? You spoke earlier of, um, of, of, of being right in there with Jodie Comer and finding the beat and finding the comedic beat with through accent uh, rhythms how was it on things like night at the museum when you've got people like robin williams and steve coogan and ricky gervais who to me from the outside seem like a force that you have to kind of hold on and hopefully steer in the right the right direction that's all it is man they are (laughs) wild 
magnificent stallions. You are never going to break that horse. You are yeah. never going to ultimately and completely tell that horse where to stay, where to trot, where to <laughs> yeah. run. So here's what you do. You get on its back, you take the reins, you hold the reins loosely because you yeah. want that stallion speed and magnificence and you just give little directional adjustments. But you ride that horse through the finish line and on Night at the Museum where I had so many, I'm, I'm exhausting yeah. myself with the horse metaphor, but I had so many <laughs> amazing thoroughbreds. And what a stable. I mean, truly what a stable. Every day I would look at the call sheet, which is where they list who's coming to work that day. Every day on all three United Museums, because bear in mind, on the second one, I had Christopher Guest, Jonah Hill, Amy Adams. On the third one, I had, you know, Dan Stevens and I had Ben Kingsley, right? So as you can tell on every movie, my casting appetite was voracious on those museum films. But the reason why I think they worked around the world is I was just trying to commandeer a lot of brilliant collaborators. And that's... That's that was my goal and that was my joy. How how do you find the the job of of um, figuring each collaborator out in in the amount of time you have? And with film, I think I always feel there's a little bit more time than with TV. TV feels so time restricted and constrained. But how do you find that? Because again, you talk through all of these amazing cast members. They're so different as artists and going to be so different in getting the best out of them. And again, particularly in a thing like Night at the Museum where you've got huge names who aren't necessarily in every scene. So I'd imagine you've got a limited amount of time with them, a limited window to get this out of them. How do you find that? Do you do a lot of prep and research on them or do you feel them as they come in the room and, and go where it goes? You feel it out. You feel it out. And it's kind of like in real life. When we meet someone, we get a vibe on them pretty quickly, don't we? We can sense arrogance. We can sense uh, emotional repression. We can, we can feel people yeah, yeah, out yeah. pretty quickly. I find with actors, it's just something that I've always been able to do. I can feel out the access points of each actor and the language of each actor. And what I love about this job and why it's never boring. And now I've made 13 films is every movie is different. And every actor in each individual movie has a different access point and a different language. And it's my job to listen, feel it and adjust my approach actor to actor. So the way I direct Ben Stiller was wildly different than Sir Ben you know, which was very different than Christopher Guest or Coogan. And that's the endless diversity of the directing job is you're constantly changing your dance partner and the way you dance. I love it. It's beautiful. I'll start uh, to wrap things up now. I normally end by asking what's ahead. That's always a tough question in this industry because there's so much you can't talk about. But as a producer on IMDb, you've got 81 projects listed as upcoming. So so there's a lot ahead. You touched upon the Adam project with Ryan. Str- Stranger Things Series 4 tra- trailer dropped just before we came on this, on this call. I saw Se- Sesame Street on there with Bo Burnham and Chance the Rapper, who are two of my favourites. So, yeah, what's ahead and what can we look forward to? Well, everything you just said is true. 
everything you yep, just great. said is true. That's good to confirm because IMDb is also a, oh, a no. den of lies at times. If there's so, 81 so. things on IMDb, I guarantee you that 35 of them are dead or inaccurate. But yeah. but yes, so we're very hard at work on Stranger Things 4. That's been very consuming for the Duffers and me, but it is it is a creation that I adore and I'm happy to give myself to Adam project, which will be on Netflix in the first half of 2022. I'm currently editing that movie and doing the visual effects. And it's, it's Ryan and I teaming up again in a very different kind of movie. It's really a time travel adventure and ultimately a tearjerker. It's a very emotional and different kind of film. And he co-stars opposite Mark Ruffalo, Zoe Saldana, Catherine Keener, Jennifer Garner. That one was an absolute joy. And we're about to also go into production on Shadow and Bone season two, uh, which was a nice success for us in a completely different genre. So I love the eclecticism of what I get to do. And I am really grateful every day in a very conscious way that I have a career that allows me to express myself in all these different ways. How, how was it, you know, you've mentioned huge names and, and being in collaboration with your Christopher guests, your, your, your Robbie Williams. Is there a bigger name than Big Bird or, 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 no. or, no, or no, Oscar no, the Grouch? No. You, know, you know, these are the biggest names that you can get, right? How was yeah. that? They, these are what we call, these are, these are iconic legacy characters and yeah. one treats them with tremendous respect. I've spent now a decade trying to get a big screen feature film Sesame Street musical into the world. We are getting closer and closer and it, it was heartbreaking because we were about to shoot when right. COVID hit. And indeed, we had Annie Hathaway and Chance the Rapper. We had all our songs written by Bo Burnham, who's an absolute... I was going to say, Chance and Bo have both shown during the pandemic what they can do to bring musical-type stuff into the into the world. So surely strengthens... In a way that feels very contemporary. And in yeah. the case of Bo, the songs he's written for our Sesame Street movie are pure Bo Burnham, but also somehow absolutely completely sesame street um and 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 so my hope is that as we god willing emerge from these uncertain times we will get our movie back on track and bring it to audiences in the next year or two because it's a special one and and yes i i've worked with some of the biggest movie stars in the world but I've never been as starstruck as I was at the table read where I had the actors reading Grover and (laughs) Ernie and Bert and Elmo and Oscar. That was a day I'll never forget. Amazing. Well, thank you very much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope the rest of the day goes wonderfully. It won't be this interesting, but I hope I get through it too. And thank you very much for a great interview. No problem, man. I'm going to... Send you a link to to one of them videos on on, right on. on one of the socials. So uh, yeah, right have on. a good day. Thank you. Thanks, man. You've been listening to Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces. There we go. That was Sean Levy. You know I'm always buzzing in an episode when the guest 
comments on how good the questions are and how enjoyable the conversation is. You know I was buzzing over that, particularly when it's a producer and director that I'm obviously going to be hoping to work with at some point in the future. So to get on on Sean's radar, but also to find out that we're on the same wavelength, that was a good conversation. And we, yeah, I really enjoyed that. So yeah, hope you enjoyed it as much as we clearly did. I'll be back on Wednesday with Steve's, Steve Stamp of the Corrupt FM People Just Do Nothing crew doing a rare interview. He doesn't do a lot of interviews as Steve Stamp. He's that, that, and I've obviously done loads of promo in character, but it's rare to get a one on one with Steve. So you're going to enjoy it. It's a cracking one. So yeah, I'll see you on Wednesday. Until then, stay safe and stay sane. Ta ta.